This is Tire Information Whiskey, 2153 Zulu, wind 060 at 5. Seriously, it's Mike Juarez, this is Archer Radar Contact. Azure's weather information from Minnesota, available on flight service frequency. You've dialed in the Flying Midwest Podcast, connecting aviators from across America's heartland. Sharing news, information, and events from around the region. Sit back, relax, and join our crew for some hangar talk as we discuss a wide variety of regional aviation topics. And now, from our home at the Anoka County Blaine Airport, our checklist is complete and we're ready for departure for another episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hello everyone, Jim here with the Fly Midwest Podcast. So happy you're able to join us. On this episode, we'll sit down with retired airline captain Ken Chase to discuss crew resource management. We'll chat about not only how it's used in the industry, but how it could apply to your general aviation flying. And as always, news, information, and events from around the region with some friendly hangar talk along the way. So strap in and let's take off into this episode of the Flying Midwest Podcast. Hey guys. What's up? I know what's going on with Trevor. He's got a lot of driving to do. Ooh. I do not envy you, sir. Three days. Three days on the road. Where is this at again? So for those of you who didn't catch on a couple episodes ago, Trevor is going down to um, C-130 Flight Engineer School down in where again? Blackland Air Force Base, San Antonio, Texas. So three day drive ahead of you, but... On the back side of it, once you get there, you get to do all sorts of Air Force, you know, airplane stuff. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> yeah, I'm, they're not going to let me touch an airplane for at least, uh, I don't know, 15 weeks. And frankly, I can't blame them. But <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? I mean, it's just not like I'm you. commercially it's, rated it's or anything you. like that. But uh, yeah, they don't they don't trust anybody touching those darn airplanes. You know, it's kind of funny when they... Um, when uh, you get the crews and then you get the, well, you get the air crews and then you get the ground crews, right? The ground crews will sit there and say, oh, that's my airplane. You got to be taking care of my airplane. The air crews will say, no, that's my airplane. Fix my airplane. <laughs> um, yeah. Just think that, of the, but look at the level of ownership that's taken by everyone involved. Yes. Right until you break something and then it's the other side's fault, right? <laughs> <laughs> there is a joke in the airline world as well as the uh, the air force world and you guys probably know where i'm going with this that uh, it takes a high school degree to fix something that a college degree broke <laughs> i think that's a true story but that sounds like quite the journey you're going to take there trevor and we're excited for you and wish you the best of luck and your endeavors okay. down at lackland oh yeah the birthplace of airmen that's true ew <laughs> <laughs> ew you do realize two out of three of us have been down there and went through basic training, right, Maddie? Yeah. <laughs> sure. I don't, I don't know your lives. Yeah. Dude. I was in the air force for, if you would listen to the show, you would hear no, the okay. bios and know I was in the air force. <laughs> I know you were in the air force. I'm just saying, I don't know where you went for basic training. As Everyone not- in the air force goes to the birthplace of the airmen, which is Blackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. Gateway Texas. to the air force. That's a better way of putting it than the birthplace of airmen. <laughs> 
because I was born in St. Paul, but yeah, <laughs> well, you weren't born as an airman, no, no, I was a trainee for airmen's for are years. born, not made. <laughs> they wouldn't even let you call yourself an airman until what week six of bacon, seven, eight. How many weeks is it? I don't even remember. It, it's last when I went through, it was eight and a half weeks. Yeah, that's what it is. It's like the last week you're in after warrior week, you're an airman. Yeah, whatever it was. Yeah, we won't talk about that. My dad called it Warrior Week and spelled it W-E-A-K. He was in the army, so taking some jabs. I like the memes yeah. where uh, where you have uh, army lodging versus Marine Corps lodging versus <laughs> Navy lodging versus Air Force lodging. We get a five course meal on Crystal. You know, yeah. I've heard I've heard it a little bit different. Um, where it's all the different branches, but the question is, what do you do when you find a scorpion in your tent? And the Air Force's answer is, you call room service, and that's why there's a tent in your room. <laughs> that's good oopsies so let's jump right in the news shall we we shall duluth minnesota based cirrus aircraft has announced an expansion plan for their facilities the company is looking to rapidly expand their operations in the city of duluth and working with st louis county and the city in the form of a 1.2 million dollar tax abatement package the move is expected to bring at least 80 additional jobs to the company bringing its total workforce to around 1,300 workers. As Cirrus continues with this rapid expansion project, they'll move into an existing maintenance repair and overhaul facility that was previously owned by Northwest Airlines. They're also looking to purchase a building that they already occupy and lease with eventual plans to expand the campus at a cost of 25 to $30 million. In other news, the FAA awards contract to uh, drone research in North Dakota. So the FAA has awarded more than $2 million in contracts to two companies that will conduct unmanned aerial systems research. The funds were awarded through a program that demonstrates or validates technologies essential for safe integration of the UAS into the national airspace system. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems, Inc., an anchor tenant of Grand Sky Drone Research and Business Park, received nearly $1.5 million and uh, Fargo-based product and development technology, Apero Systems, received about $800,000 in funding. They will work in conjunction with Northern Plains UAS test site near the Grand Forks Air Force Base. The reason for the contracts, they're awarded to focus on detect and avoid capabilities. This technology will enable unmanned aircraft to detect other flying aircraft nearby and maintain a safe distance from them. Research will evaluate the use of LT cellular networks for unmanned aircraft, which will help ensure communication between drones on the ground and to help control them, which I think, honestly, if I'm if I'm looking ahead in my uh, crystal ball here, my if I'm predicting the future, I think this is going to be hugely important for when it drones become, you know, package delivery guys versus the guys in the, the brown shorts showing up on your doorstep. You'll get a, a buzzing drone dropping your package off. Won't that be a sight to see? Um, but will the drones themselves actually be wearing the uh, brown shorts or is that just? <laughs> I was actually thinking that very question myself. I'm thinking you could, you could probably make a drone wear a pair of shorts. It's like that meme that uh, like if uh if a drone would wear shorts would he wear it like this or like this nope. you know which ones i'm talking I don't think about I've seen them. like no okay i think it's if, if a dog <laughs> okay if a dog wore pants that's it you know oh. what i'm talking about would he wear them like this or like this and it's all like on the bottom half of the body or like yeah. the back half <laughs> yeah okay great you're not too old in bigger and more important news Textron. All right. Textron just unveiled their newest addition to the Cessna family, the Cessna 408 Sky Courier. This is a completely new design from the Cessna branch of Textron, and it is a large two-engine utility turboprop. So 
This aircraft was made to wear many hats. It can be configured very easily. It has low operating costs, high performance, and high payload capability. According to Textron, it can carry over 6,000 pounds of payload, which is a lot. It's powered by two Pratt & Whitney PT-6A engines, which are the leading turboprop engines on the market and have been for many, many years. Also the safest. Mm -hmm. Uh, FedEx Express was actually part of the development of this aircraft and was an instrumental part in the aircraft becoming what it is today. The XTI Courier is actually the first propeller aircraft that Cessna has manufactured since 1984 when the Cessna 208 came out. So this is an entirely new aircraft and has been a, is a bit of a departure from the jets that Cessna has been focusing on lately. The Sky Courier celebrated its inaugural flight in May of 2020, and the three aircraft that they've developed have built over 2,000 hours together. That should do it for our news. Thanks, guys. Um, over to Trevor now for some aviation history. And boy, do we have some aviation history to talk about this week. If you look 10 years ago, February 8th of 2012, the last flight of the uh, the Boeing 747 modified to carry the space shuttle made its final final landing at Air Force Plant 42, Palmdale Springs, California. The original uh, 747 that was uh, that that actually flew the uh, shuttles around was actually inaugurated with Japan Airlines, oddly enough, before it was picked up by NASA. There were actually two 747s that were short range. They were high high capacity. Boeing did some strengthening and within the uh, the structure of the airplane to handle the the high loads and short distances. The 747-100SR that shuttled around the um, the shuttles, shuttled around the shuttles. <laughs> did some shuttling around. They had a maximum surface ceiling of fifteen thousand feet, and its range was eleven hundred and fifty miles. Now, if we look back a little bit further, two years earlier, also. This week in aviation history, February 8th, 2010, the 747-800 freighter did its experimental flight. It's kind of interesting because you can actually see some of the uh, some of the last operators of the 747, including UPS, Cargo Lux, and a few other cargo variants. But as somebody who's been a huge fan of the 747, it's it's kind of sad to see that that these uh, the queen of the sky that the sun might be setting on this iconic airplane. Ooh, if you like 747s, there's a book. Um, it's a memoir written by the guy who headed the project to the initial project and through the 300 model. Really, really good. Oh my gosh, Joe uh, Joe Joe Sutter, I think his name is. Yes, oh my gosh. I recognize that name. So good, so good. I'll I'll send I'll send you the link. This feels like something we're gonna throw in the show notes. Yes. Mm-hmm. It's really good. If you want to know basically an inside look on the development of the 747 up to the 400, doesn't cover the 400, definitely read. Um, it's called 747 Creating the World's First Jumbo Jet and Other Adventures from a Life in Aviation by Joe Sutter. It's really good. This guy headed the project. He had a really big role in that. He was, you know, lead engineer. But yeah, his story is really cool. And you get to learn a lot about the 747 and some of the challenges that they had with it, what working for Boeing was like at that time. And actually, funnily enough, the 747 was not something they were focusing on at the time. They were working on their SSRI, our uh, supersonic aircraft that never saw production. All the really top engineers were on that project. And they're like, hey, kid, you, you worked on the 727. Here, have this. This is our interim project. 
because everybody's going supersonic now, but we need to have something in the interim because uh, Pan Am wants this big aircraft. And so he's like, uh, okay. And thus the 747 was born. The iconic bubble, the hump on the very top, was developed so that the nose could lift up because Someone. when Sutter actually was planning this out, he didn't see it as a passenger aircraft. He saw it as a cargo aircraft that the, mm-hmm. that the subsonic realm of aviation was actually sunsetting. Yeah, he also did it. Um, he couldn't make a double decker work like Juan Tripp, the uh, Pan Am CEO. He wanted yeah. a double decker and he's right. like, we can't make this work, sir. Sorry, but we can make this work. And he had the originally the hump was going to be for um, like crew rest. And Juan Tripp is like, I oh, know this will be first class. <laughs> so, nice. yeah, it's it ended up being one of the most versatile aircraft, you know, the world's ever seen. All right, everybody. It's about to be air show season. So mark your calendars. I'm about to give you some dates for some air shows that are coming up this summer. May 14th to the 15th at Ellsworth Air Force Base. They have their air and space show. Uh, June 4th to the 5th in Eau Claire. Uh, We have our Chippewa Valley Air Show. June 8th, the Snowbirds are coming to town in Ypsilanti for the CF-118 Air Show. June 11th to the 12th, the Spirit of St. Louis Air Show and STEM Expo is happening in uh, St. Louis. June 18th to the 19th in Grand Forks at the Air Force Base there, there will be the Northern Thunder Air and Space Expo. And June 30th to July 4th, there will be the Battle Creek Field of Flight Air Show and Balloon Festival. So keep those marked in your calendars. And if they're nearby, go take a look at what aviation has to offer. Don't worry if you've missed on those dates. We'll have it in the show notes. And on the last episode, we had Pam on from the uh, Michigan's Women Aviation Career Symposium. Just a reminder, their event takes place next Saturday at the Western Michigan University College of Aviation in Battle Creek, Michigan. We will put in the show notes their Eventbrite website so that you can register. It is $10 to attend that event. And it is live in person in Michigan. So as we get ready to jump into talking with our guests this week, we're going to talk a little bit about crew resource management. So for the CFI Minute, Maddie's got a few thoughts for us discussing just that, crew resource management and how it can apply to you. Welcome everyone to the CFI Minute. Today, I'm going to talk a little bit about crew resource management. I'm going to go through the history of the concept, how it contributes to safety, and how you can adopt and use a version of CRM to fit your own type of flying. Before CRM, airline crews generally operated like this. The captain was the boss. Nobody was to question his ultimate authority. The first officer was there to perform his portion of the tasks, often assigned by the captain, and the flight engineer, if necessary, completed their own tasks without a word. Generally, this worked, but as time wore on and airline accident investigations began to show that opposing forces in the cockpit were a large part of their causations, the cracks began to show. Two air accidents spurred the aviation industry to pursue change in the flight deck. The first is one that I'm sure a lot of you have heard of, was the disaster at Tenerife in 1977. This is still aviation's most deadly accident. Two 747s collided with each other on the runway and 583 people died. Had the captain of the departing KLM flight listened to the hesitancy from his flight engineer, this crisis may have been avoided. The captain was the airline's chief flight instructor, and he had over 11,000 flight hours, yet his final decision to take off was the wrong one. Although that was not the only contributor to the accident, it showed glaring issues in commercial aviation at the time. Standard radio phraseology, ATC processes, and crew management. The second accident was United Airlines Flight 
173, which was the one that spurred an active effort to reform cockpit organization. Due to the flight's crew's inability to work together to solve a landing gear issue, the DC-8 they were flying ran completely out of fuel while holding near Portland. Although there were survivors of this accident, it prompted United to be the first airline to adopt an early form of what we know now to be CRM in 1981. Mainly, this version focused on authoritarian captains and trained them to be more open to suggestions when making decisions. By the time the late 80s rolled around, many airlines had their versions of CRM training incorporated into their programs. CRM is now heavily integrated into airline pilot training. This concept, paired with threat and error management, work hand in hand so that pilots in an airline who have never met can fly an aircraft together seamlessly. CRM is the how and TEM is the what in regards to threat detection and mitigation in a flight deck setting. Pilots must utilize communications, situational awareness, empathy, problem solving, respect, decision making, and teamwork to fully reap the safety and efficiency benefits of CRM. Essentially, decisions are encouraged to be seven-striped or mutual decisions between the two pilots. There should be a respect for authority, but it must be balanced with the insurance of safety. Pilots are shown to make one mistake per 100 actions. In an airliner, there are safeguards in place to minimize these errors. What about you when you fly? Although you may not have a crew alongside you, the FAA has developed something called Single Pilot Crew Resource Management, or SRM. This is essentially the solo version of CRM that you can use no matter what or where you fly. Although you don't have someone verifying your inputs, you can put your own safeguards in place to ensure that you're mitigating your own mistakes and identifying hazards. It more tightly intertwines with aeronautical decision making and focuses on more how you, as a single pilot, can effectively use your resources, both before and during a flight, to ensure the safest outcome possible. There are several ways that you can use to analyze what's going on in the cockpit. The FAA proposes the 5Ps model for keeping track of all the aspects of flight, the I'm safe acronym for checking in on your own fitness to fly, the risk assessment matrix for determining the risk level of hazard, and so on. There are even other acronyms you can find on the internet or maybe even ask your CFI what they use. No matter if you use the FAA's acronyms or have a method of your own, make sure that you're using something you can easily remember and that works for you. If you're flying with another person, pilot or not, divvy up tasks and employ the trust but verify method during your flight. If you're by yourself, make doubly sure you know where and who your resources are located and use them when necessary. If you have a few minutes, I highly recommend you take a look at the FAA's risk management handbook. It's not too long, but it goes into these concepts more in detail. It'll tell you how to recognize and mitigate hazards, how to make informed decisions, how to utilize resources, and how to best monitor your flight. At the end of the day, the only one who can make you a better, safer, and more knowledgeable pilot is you. Thanks for listening. All right. So on this episode, we have retired airline pilot uh, Ken Chase. Um, he also has experience with the United States Air Force flying B-52s and has some fairly interesting stories that um, I've heard from Trevor. So we're going to dive right into this portion of the episode. And Ken, how about you uh, give us a brief introduction of yourself? I was an instructor for Northwest and Delta. As far as flying the line, I uh, worked as a sim instructor, worked as a ground instructor, so wasn't out there uh, beating the jetways every day like those guys. I had it pretty easy, get home every night, most nights, but uh, maintained typewriting, got to go out and fly uh, for proficiency, and it was kind of the best of both worlds. So I started out uh, out of school, college, uh, went directly to the Air Force undergraduate pilot training, flew the T-37, the T-38, drew an assignment after I upset my T-38 class commander who fielded me off to a B-52 in tropical Minot, North Dakota. <laughs> so basically spent the duration there. We had access to 
a program to maintain proficiency for the co-pilots, accelerated co-pilot enrichment, ACE for short. So had an opportunity to put a few hours in the T-38. I can remember not on a regular basis, but on more than one occasion being fielded into the squad commander's office to reaffirm that I knew that my job at the base was to fly the B-52 and not the T-38 because I enjoyed that way too much. I guess it showed. <laughs> so worked there, got out. I've been on my own in the uh, general aviation market. I, uh, I have a hangar that I rent. Currently, I have eight aircraft, eight aircraft in there right now. Wow. Oh, wow. And, and uh, some of them are projects, some are complete, but uh, I've always uh, had more than a, a candid interest in uh, what's going on there. On the general side of things, I got involved with a number of people importing L-29, L-39 aircraft and worked hand with them for the assembly and uh, got to meet some of the folks coming over from uh, the Czech Republic that were helping us on the assembly there. And get type rated and flew those aircraft and maintain an L-29. I'm working on that right now in the hangar. And uh, one day I uh, slipped in the bathtub, hit my head on the soap dish on the way down. That'd be a great idea to go buy a MiG-21. So I got one of those sitting in there and uh, just some other odds and ends, things to keep me busy, but uh, worked with uh, Northwestern Delta after the merger took some time off after that, got back on board with Endeavor, and that's where I met uh, up with Seth and uh, Trevor. Kind of back out on my own again. Things were in kind of a pull-down status with the COVID going on, and I was getting tired of commute from Rochester to Minneapolis anyway, so. So how long were you with um, Delta and Northwest combined? Northwest, I started 2005, and I think I worked with them through 2012 when they finally made the move to Atlanta. We took uh, by the fleets. They severed the training programs in uh, Minneapolis at the NATCO facility. And like I mentioned, uh, the Minnesota Vikings bought that property and they're attempting to teach each other to throw and catch footballs at this point in time. And I don't think they're doing a very good job. So it might've been a wasted investment from my perspective, but uh yeah, I didn't want to go down to Atlanta. We got the invite. My wife and I went down. We still had uh, too many ties to Rochester. Uh, my wife works for the Mayo Clinic. She's working uh, research with them right now. And we just thought it was not a good time for the move. So I went ahead and adios to Delta at that point in time. So as a SIM instructor, I'd imagine that there's plenty of instruction covering, you know, crew resource management, how to work together as a team to operate within that environment. Yeah, that's one of the major emphasis to uh, you're taking people that have not had a lot of crew experience. From my perspective, by the time you came up and you were in the wide bodies and you were training on the 747, that was a uh, unknown fact. These people knew how to run eight cars. They knew how to manage a crew. They knew how to sit the, both the right and the left seat because you don't just plop in the airlines and jump into the 47. So the other end of that is when I ended up in Endeavor, we were bringing people out last week, you're flying a system 172, this week you're going to fly a CRJ. So the crew concept was fairly new there. So yeah, the CRM was important. I've seen that kind of change through the years. Some of what they've leaned to is important. I can remember coming on board and the captain sits down for the brief and puts his hand down to the throttle quadrant and says, this is my half the cockpit, that's your half the cockpit. I manage this side, you manage that side, any questions. And I've seen it involved into a much more approachable environment from left to right or right to left. 
as it should be. We're all human. We all make mistakes. We all miss things. And sometimes two sets of eyes can preclude some of that. Definitely. So from that perspective where you talk about, you know, times have changed from how you first had that breakdown of this is my side of the aircraft to now that more open flight deck or open dialogue and things like that. How did that change from an instructor standpoint? Did that change your approach over the years or? Well, that, that pretty much had taken place prior to my involvement in the airline industry. I did see some of that back in my Air Force career on a, on a crewed aircraft. We had six crew members in the 52 then. We still had a, a gunner flying with us. And crew management, uh, again, fell to the aircraft commander, the left seater. And there were responsibilities that he doled out. But it was interesting for me to see that the right seater is the one that ran the checklist, called the checklist, initiated altitude auction station checks, things like that. And it kind of transitioned in a role where the left seater was an overseer of the right seater actually managing the aircraft. They worked in harmony. There were different events that would come up. Uh, we need to get the, the AR checklist done for refueling. We need to get a uh, low level check. We want to brief the approach. So you ended up seeing a much more harmonious thing coming on. Even in my short time in the Air Force, I, I saw things migrate into a whole cockpit. Uh, the analogy where both both sides of the flight deck were, were communicating. So the right seater usually managed the radios, calling checklists. Uh, that was the busy job. It was the right seat in the 52. Left seat just kind of was an overseer at that point. Nowadays, if we look at the Air Force, you have equal say, but not equal responsibility. So ultimately, aircraft commander has the ultimate responsibility for the safety of that flight. But everybody has a say in the airlines. It, it goes to the, it takes two to go and one to not, especially when you talk about first officer and captain, but you also have a third person that's in there. That's, that's not on board the airplane. That's the dispatcher. And all three of those need to work together as a crew. Yeah. As part of CRM, you want to take advantage of every input you have. It could be sitting next to you in the, in the flight deck. It could be the guy in the radio. We would always call ahead. We'd look at weather. We would look at conditions. If uh, we we're in a deferred, we wanted as much information as we could get. Part of CRM is understanding resources and, and how to apply and use them. So I saw a lot of that as a new concept at Endeavor with fairly new pilots. We're just adjusting to crew influence and the sources you could actually reach outside the aircraft. That radio is a wonderful thing. And the ACARs will come on board as well. You can utilize a lot of different ways of communicating when everything else breaks down, you're sitting around, watch your cell phone. You've got all these options to input information into what you're trying to do for the safe operation of that aircraft, bring everybody back. So opening your eyes and understanding first the tools and then the application of was a, a big thing at Endeavor. Uh, we had the people, we'd bring him in and simultaneously teach uh, brand new right seaters along with uh, captain upgrades we could see uh, a, a number of people that, uh, you know, it was just a, an enlightening experience for them at that point, um, introducing concepts they hadn't really had any hands-on with before. It was kind of fun to watch a light bulb go on an occasion. So that's a, a great kind of segue into my next question, where you talk about the experience of having those, you know, when you're in the 4-7, you've got all this wide variety of, you know, more experienced aviators, whereas opposed to Endeavor, where you're teaching you know, people that are coming off of that GA background. So from that space, how would you go about instructing and introducing that CRM concept? They had to understand the tools. 
Uh, a big part of that is understanding procedures, understanding what you're trying to do with the checklist. What am I really trying to accomplish here? Am I, I'm trying to get this airplane in a safe position to facilitate a pushback or taxi out. Um, once they had those down, then the CRM is what makes sure those things are accomplished. You see people monitoring each other. Ultimately, the left seater signs the airplane. They're the ones that are responsible, but the right seater is responsible for doing everything they can do to make sure the left seater has success at that. I think the biggest surprise for a lot of these folks is how busy it actually is. You're always trying to beat the clock. You're trying to get the push out on time. And that's even if everything is going good. You don't have any maintenance issues. You don't have any delays uh, for any reason. You're not trying to wait out the weather. You have an opportunity to, to work through these things. And a seasoned crew is fun to watch. They can come through and they understand where those points are and they can work ahead at points, but you don't want to get too far ahead because then you're going to be missing things. You want to do things as they should be done to make sure everything's been completed in the order it, it needs to be done to safely operate everybody on the aircraft. So, and that even comes into, and this is a new experience for me when I get to the commercial end of things is working with the crew in back. Uh, before my crew in back was my gunner and all he had to do is heat up my coffee and hand electronics warfare officer back there as well. And that was the rear end crew to me. And to, to take into account, you've got people and passengers, that was an eye opener. No, I think just make sure everybody understands what you have available and how you can best utilize that for your flight was a big concept. I truly believe that if you pay attention to what you're doing every day, you're going to learn something every day. You're going to refine what you know and make it a uh, probably more pleasant experience for yourself. You're going to have a better understanding of how you uh, are going to manipulate this aircraft this time, work with this crew, and pick up a little bit on aircraft systems and understand a little bit of the way of the world when it comes to certain airports. When you go into strange fields, you start that learning process all over again. It's a constant state of evolution. You're going to uh, understand a little bit more every time you do it. It's always changing up. We don't land at the same airfield every time. So there's always these challenges of moving and, and having an application to uh, put my knowledge base into a new environment. And that's kind of the challenge of aviation, I think. So what do you think are some of the common pitfalls that you saw that pilots would go into when um, trying to learn this CRM concept that may not be as familiar as some other concepts like flying the plane would be to them? Well, from what I saw, I didn't get to spend a lot of time in the sim with these folks. I was in an observer role on multiple occasions, but I think uh, the successes and the failures that I did witness there are people that would not be able to stay up on a checklist or lose a spot in a checklist that they weren't well-rounded in their procedures, you've got to know the procedures cold. And if you're constantly fighting the procedures, you're going to get behind and you're going to get behind in a hurry. And that's when time compresses on you and you start making mistakes. So those are the things I saw, even teaching procedures in the classroom, which by the way, we as ground instructors don't teach procedures in the classroom. But when we taught procedures in the classroom, uh, <laughs> I, I saw... I saw those, uh, those mistakes being made where I had these folks on board early on, uh, basically the first three weeks of their training with the company. Sometimes we'd have uh, requalifications coming through. Uh, it was fun to watch those folks come back up to speed. Um, maybe they're out on a medical or a military leave or something, but they would come back and you could see that wheel spin up 
a little bit faster than like a new hire for say. So it was always uh, always fun to see the different different backgrounds coming through. I had one class where I had in the back row. I don't know, Trevor, you might have been in the class with me. We had an F-16 pilot from Edwards Air Force Base who was conducting all the high-speed, low-level testing in the F-16. And down at the end of his aisle was a Cessna 172 pilot who'd been towing banners for the last three years. Oh, wow. And I had to figure out how to teach both these guys mm. without either one of them falling asleep. And that was kind of a tough one. One thing that I've, I've kind of found kind of interesting, and this kind of segues a little bit later when we start talking to maybe what we do as, as pilots for a single pilot, resource management. But when we go to the very basic private pilot level, we need to have a good understanding of flows and procedures. Because if you're operating a complex airplane, for example, you know, say a Piper Arrow or something that requires you to put the gear down, flaps, you know, mixture prop, all this sort, all the, all the things that you need as a primary and a more, little more advanced trainer, those flows and procedures and how you set yourself up for success on those flights really start the game process of learning how to be a crew. And then eventually, as you get into bigger and bigger airplanes, like the CRJ or even the 747, you start that trigger, then you have an action, then you're going to back that action up with a checklist. Mm -hmm. And that is the that is the premise that the airlines are really starting to go towards. You look at United the 173 up in Portland back in 1978. That's a prime example of crew resource management of the old age. We had a, you had a very experienced DC-8 captain who was, I think he was an instructor pilot as well he was running through every sort of checklist you could ever imagine the the second officer the the one who was working the the flight engineer panel like hey we're getting we're getting low on gas but wasn't assertive enough they ran through every every single checklist that they could possibly think of to figure out why their landing gear was malfunctioning the way it was the plane ended up running out of gas and landing short of the runway i don't think there are a whole lot of fatalities i think there was maybe half a dozen i think it was 10 out of the 153 or whatever. Yeah, almost almost a dozen. But what happened in the cockpit actually started morphing into what we see nowadays. You look at the United 232, the Sioux City crash. You actually had a, a DC-10 instructor come up from the back, help Al Haynes, who was the uh, the captain of that, you know, articulating the thrust, trying to figure out how to regain control of that. That is how today crew resource management has evolved. I think it's kind of cool. Yeah, especially it's bleeding into GA too now. Um, because they're seeing how, you know, even if you have a non-pilot in the cockpit with you, just a little bit of running things down, like, here's how to read a checklist to me. Can you do this for this flight? It can make a big difference when you get into those situations where you're in hard IMC and yeah, you have a gear malfunction or you have something that goes wrong and suddenly you have that helping hand who's also looking out for you. And it's even better if you have another pilot there, even if you this isn't a plane that you need two pilots for. If you're on a flight with a friend who is a pilot, you can integrate those kinds of, of things to help the flight end successfully, which is what we all want when we fly. That's taking advantage of every resource mm -hmm. that you have. If you've got another set of eyes in the flight deck, if you've got uh, somebody can like say, just handle a checklist for you. Absolutely. All those things will help. That We were taught back in the military, three things. Number one, and always number one is maintain aircraft control. Number two, Analyze the situation. Number three, take the appropriate action. One of the best instructors I ever had, this guy was older than dirt. And uh, he, uh, he came up to me one day and he chastised me for the speed at which I ran through the checklist because in the Air Force, uh, sometimes we had to get ready to leave in a hurry. So we expedited the ground checklist pretty good. We all got fairly good. You knew what it was and you're throwing switches around. 
at a high rate of speed. And he said, you have to understand that no one's going to shoot a missile at us here, hopefully. You can take your time. Nothing good happens fast in this industry. And I had to think about that. I took a step back and he's right. Nothing good happens fast. Only bad things happen fast. Take your time. Well, and you taught me one big key way back when we were, you know, piggybacking, instructing and whatnot. You said there's very few things will crash an airplane immediately. So that's one of the big things that you taught me, Ken, that I, I've kind of started incorporating into everyday flying for me. Yeah. The only crunch points that I can see right now is you've got an airplane falling apart around you. Something you're not going to really be able to run a checklist and fix. You've got an onboard fire to handle the fire. You run the procedures. You get on the ground as quick as you can. Mm-hmm. That you're up against time. Run out of gas, another one you need to pay attention to and get on the ground for you. Or in there making no noise on final approach. So, yeah, m- most of these procedures that you do responding to an emergency situation, emergency procedure, you've got the time to execute them. And that's where you really want to slow down and make sure that, A, you're prepared for this by having your systems knowledge intact. And you want to make sure you're running the right procedure, that you're in the right checklist and that you're following through letter by letter, uh, you can get into a crunch and you can actually make the mistake. You can get ahead of yourself. You can think you're manipulating that checklist correctly, but you've got to be very disciplined and run it completely. If you miss one step, it might negate uh, the whole benefit of running that procedure. You want to make sure it's run concise and you slow down, and you have points of confirmation. You want to make sure all of that is covered. So where it gets critical now is if you move into a single pilot aircraft, you don't have anybody to rely on but yourself. Uh, Chances are you're going to be so busy, you're not going to get on the radio and try and solicit outside help. You have a real-time scenario, you're going to have to deal with it, and you're going to have to deal with it based on your general knowledge, uh, your airmanship, and uh, basically what you remember, what you've been taught and respond accordingly. So it's critical that you do pay attention. It's easy to fly when it's a blue sky day and everything's working well. But when you're out there in the weather and everything starts going sideways, that's when you're gonna be trying to figure out what metal you're made of. Maddie, what was that phrase that you uh, that you brought up a few weeks back? Something about, uh, we don't rise to the occasion as pilots? Oh yeah, as pilots. We don't rise to the occasion. We sink to our highest level of training. It's a pretty common adage, but it's it's one that I found to be very true. I mean, that goes along with another saying that I've heard of is, is you live how you train. Mm, I like that. Oh, very much so. So Ken, we've talked a little bit about kind of the airlines, the, the military aspect of how uh, the benefits of crew resource management have evolved over the years. How do you take those things that you've learned in your professional life and apply those to your general aviation craft, whether it be yourself or advice that you give to other general aviation pilots? Well, they certainly have their place. I don't care if you're flying a C-5A or 747 or a Cessna 152. It was said a while back, can't remember the exact quote who said it, but someone wanted to know what is the safest airplane to fly. And and the remark was, well, that's got to be a got to be a Piper Cub. And he said, well, why is that? And he said, well, that's the airplane that'll kill you the slowest. So You've got to put that form of discipline, and that's the word I think that carries through every aspect, military, commercial, or general. You've got to be self-disciplined. If you're just going to go out there and like you're driving to the 7-Eleven in a Piper Comanche, chances are you're going to miss something. 
So you want to be prepared. You want to have a good understanding of your equipment. You want to make sure it's in reasonable shape. You have to be able to carry through that commitment to yourself and the people that are going to be with you to maintain your equipment, maintain your own expertise. You don't want to be one of those people out flying three times a year, and that's only when the family's in town, and throw them in the backseat and go show them a good time. FAA has mishaps littered with that kind of activity. Oh, yeah. If, yeah, you're, weekend if you're serious about aviation, be serious about it. I mean, if even if you're just a hobbyist, be serious about it. Because once you have accepted that responsibility of putting another person in that airplane next to you, you're going to be held accountable by yourself and by everybody else. You're going to be the one accountable. You'd better be in a position to do right by your knowledge base and by your actions. So that that's a carry through in everyone I've seen, whether, uh, again, you're wearing Nomex or a blue suit and a cap, or you're out there in your jeans and tennis shoes. And you've got to have those basics, I think, in line to do it successfully. Yeah, I, I think you spoke to a really good point. I mean, there's the saying that I've heard for years about there's a big difference between current and proficient. You've got all sorts of people that can get current real quick and take the family out, but to be proficient and to be safe, they're, they're different things. So, and I can fully admit that there's been times where I've, I've been current and not proficient, but that's a matter of knowing my own limitations and correcting that. Yeah, I think if everybody's honest with themselves, we've all been there. Uh, that's something I think you just really need to yell it to yourself and Again, anybody else with you to maintain that proficiency level. Currency is a number. Proficiency is a skill. Yeah. And keeping yourself accountable can be as far as like having a an accurate personal minimums list. I think we've talked about that before on the podcast just briefly, but definitely yep. um, keeping that updated because with your you know, either your proficiency, not just your currency, you can be current at any time, but your proficiency level changes all the time. You know, as you learn and grow as a pilot, you can definitely change those minimums. But if you don't fly for a while, you definitely have to go back to the drawing board with those. As a single pilot and you're dealing with all uh, that kind of stuff having to do with the flight, you definitely want to be honest with yourself. Well, I used to teach that this is a very perishable skill. The knowledge base is perishable. There's so much to understand and try and retain uh, you start running the procedures and understanding the triggers, the procedures, and what you're looking for in the checklist, all perishable. And the actual physical portion of pushing and pulling on the yoke or the throttles, that can be inherently like riding a bicycle. Everybody's heard those comparisons. But if you don't understand the procedures, you don't know where to position that aircraft. That's where it's going to bite you. So, yeah, you've got to be accountable to yourself, I think, is the biggest step in being a, uh, a good aviator. And that comes in with your airmanship. If you want to uh, do this for a long time, you better be prepared to accept what those responsibilities are and act accordingly. If you haven't been in the cockpit for a while, go get somebody that has and get out to the point where you feel refreshed and you're up to speed and that comfort level becomes almost recognizable again. Other than that, you just you're really playing with fire outside of that. You're rolling dice. Another good way to do this for GA pilots is the FA wings program. It definitely, if you're one of those people who can only get in the air every once in a while, do those wings credits. Uh, you do a ground course and then you go do a flight course with the CFI. You work on different stuff every time. They can even, um, once you get, I think, a certain amount of them done, you can bypass a, a flight review. It counts for a flight review. So just keeping all those skills proficient, especially stuff that you don't do very often, don't wait till your biannual flight review to do it. That's why they took the biannual out. It's because they want people to do them more often than just every two years. Because if we're being honest, nobody can go two years and then be exactly the same where they were. Two months would even be a challenge for a lot of people Absolutely. I know. 
I was just going to say the same thing, but I mean, like I was working on my commercial rating and then we, we worked on buying our hangar and it, it was what a four or five month gap before I got back in the air and it was flight review time. Cause I blew past my flight review working on the hangar. Yeah. Some of it started coming back, like riding a bike, like, like we say, but I had to be a little bit more deliberate with my study as I prepared for it. You know, the nuts and bolts of it, kind of like you said, Ken, but the, some of the whys behind it, like it's okay, I'm going to check the mags, but what are you looking for? Are you just going through the motions and turning the key? Or are you really looking at looking for that drop and, and monitoring what you've got there? So, and this is where I like to plug. Have you guys heard of pilotworkshops.com? Pilot workshops, they, they do a VFR and they do an IFR pilot series. And every month they come out with these scenarios and actually goes to uh, the wings credits, Maddie. Mm-hmm. You can actually do some of your wings credits. You can claim a wings credit for it. But oh, nice. uh, pilot workshops, so they actually, I have this manual. It's a, it's a uh, flying companion, a pilot-friendly manual from passenger to helpful crew member, 50 tasks uh, non-pilot can complete, which basically goes into what we were talking about earlier, which is the, you know, the utilization of that passenger may or may not be a pilot, but what can they do as a passenger? When we talk about the proficiency versus currency, Obviously, there's two different levels on that. You know, proficiency might be a little something different for me than it is for somebody else, but it's something that that it's kind of moldable. Working on a pilot workshop, going through those monthly videos, they actually make you think. It's like, okay, what if you lost RAIM on your on your GPS when you're on and you're in the middle of the approach and you didn't catch it, and all of a sudden your your minimums shoot up, you know, six seven hundred feet. All of a sudden you're blowing past your minimums and you know almost brush on the top of the trees. So it'll say, you know, here's your options, A, B, C, or D, which do you choose? And they have a round panel of, of people that'll actually come in, some really good stuff. And, and I pay, I think it's like $14 a month for this, for the subscription. I think to that point too, you talk about this program that exists. I've noticed a lot more on the various Facebook groups that we monitor and kind of keep an eye on for events for this podcast, the amount of pinch hitter courses you start to see where you've got spouses or friends that fly with you regularly and getting a CFI with those individuals and teaching them some of those skills as far as we've talked about with reading the checklist, kind of knowing the things to look for, scanning for traffic, and the basic fundamentals of how to operate that aircraft should something happen to the actual pilot. Enough that you can talk to ATC, declare emergencies, and start getting some better instruction on what to do. So I think as an industry, GA-wise, we're at least recognizing that that's something that is a, a huge benefit, especially with your more frequent passengers. I think the passengers are the ones who recognize them. I think I have a lot of ladies that go into my pilot Facebook groups and they're always looking for like, Hey, I'm like, my husband's a pilot or my best friend's a pilot or whatever. I don't know what I'm doing in there. Can I, is there something, is there a way I can get better with that or like learn how to land or whatever? I think that's really great. They may not be a pilot, but they now have flight experience and that they can actually like share that with others and they make it safer in that cockpit because they do have those tools, albeit rudimentary. They do have those tools to be able to, you know, pinch hit to get on the ground if something were to happen. And I think that's huge. Do we want to talk a bit about when you've got two pilots in the aircraft at the same time as far as the GA environment? Ken, do you have thoughts on that? The only real comparisons I would have in the general aviation are, again, complex aircraft, uh, these L-29s, L-39s, uh, backing each other up on checklists, uh, another set of eyes outside, keeping that communication open. Uh, those aircraft are, they're not dual, they're a tandem seat aircraft, so you're 
in another environment. So a lot of uh, com just communication straight through with the interphone is probably your best friend. You notice something on the instrumentation. I've been a couple situations where you see something going on that shouldn't be going on. You can bring it to the other person's attention. One person's going to fly the aircraft. The other person can pay attention to uh, procedures or anything that may affect the outcome of that flight in a positive manner by getting a checklist accomplished or at least try and resolve the situation, what's going on. So just assigning uh, who has responsibility for what, I think general aviation, it's not as, as uh, spelled out. You've got two people, let's say a lot of people go flying, they're both capable pilots. And you just have to, you fly the aircraft, I'll take care of the situation. Just those lines of communications, because everybody's flying the aircraft or everybody's trying to take care of the situation, something's going to get overlooked, like maybe the ground. So you want to make sure you've got everybody understanding their role, their position to help. That would be the biggest, I think, general aviation side of things. I just wanted to add quickly on to what Ken said about um, in GA flying, although CRM really isn't spelled out in a way with for two pilots, just because there are very few uh, aircraft that we would be flying in GA that would require two pilots. You got to go more into jets for that. But to all the people who are time building, for instance, for instrument commercial, ATP, whatever you're doing, um, it might be a good exercise to try and practice with a safety pilot, which is a great way to split hours, um, split costs and things like that, to do it in a little bit of an airline environment. If you don't really know much about it, there are definitely YouTube videos and things online about how airline CRM works. So if you're not super familiar, you could look those up. But from what I understand, you split up the tasks and then you each perform and you all, you check everything. Trust but verify is something that I've heard a lot, but definitely split up the tasks. So say you're the safety pilot, you take radios, you put in frequencies and you have, those are your two tasks for the flight, but you check everything. All right, Ken, what is one piece of advice that you would give a pilot who is aspiring to be in the airlines? Commitment, total commitment. You have to give yourself over. It is an exhausting uh, experiences. It's the hardest I've ever worked, but the most rewarding job I've ever had has been in aviation. And if you're afraid that you can't keep a commitment or make the commitment, find a job selling phones for Verizon or something. You've got to be able to to endure it, and it's it's grueling. It'll be long days, long nights. Uh, you'll constantly be challenged with uh, validations to prove yourself, prove your merit, and to get a job and keep a job. So the commitment you have to make is probably one of the strongest commitments you will have to undertake and hold. Um, if you're prepared to do that, uh, aviation can be a phenomenal experience. If you want to get rich, be a doctor. If you want to have fun, be a pilot. <laughs> so I'm going to give you a choice of the next part here, Ken. It's totally up to you. Um, we can either do a quiz or we test uh, your trivial knowledge and things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things of life, or we can do um, unpopular aviation opinion. Too little. Oh, unpopular aviation opinion. I always like pushing the envelope there. Oh, all right. <laughs> I knew it. I knew from the moment I saw you, I was like, this man is going to have an opinion. <laughs> well, ask Trevor. He's heard them all, I think. <laughs> well, let's hear what you got. Let's go with an unpopular aviation opinion to close things out. Where do I start? Um, <laughs> keep in mind, sir, we have one hour in this podcast. So, yeah. oh boy, we're going to need another two after that. Also, we don't want to <laughs> we'll get bring you back. 
totally flamed <laughs> by half of our audience. <laughs> well, I think sometimes the way the industry has almost undersold the training side of things, I'm a little bit miffed with that. I see people come in and try and turn it into a very mechanical, very uh, rudimentary experience. And I think there's more to it than that. Uh, I think there's a way to grow and understand and develop yourself as a pilot and let it reflect into the rest of your life. I think it's going to make you a better person all the way around. But I, I've seen and I've experienced firsthand uh, some of the cadre above me in, in some of my commercial aviation experiences where they have been the limiting factor on myself as an instructor and the students as well. And I, I think opportunity was missed in a number of those environments to make a better student. So, yeah. and that was uh, one I rode off into the sunset with. <laughs> and I will uh, stay on that horse and keep riding as long as I have to. But uh, yeah, there were opportunities I know were missed. So I won't go any deeper. I don't want to end up in a lawsuit anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have somebody who you can call just in case. <laughs> <laughs> and who is that, Maddie? <laughs> <A> Feligo. <laughs> I think I think this has been probably one of the most eye-opening podcast that we've done this thus far i think if we I'm, had... I'm sorry i'm sorry <laughs> well no i my wife always says she can't take me anywhere and i just keep proving <laughs> right so <laughs> we kept you in the house yeah we kept you in the house you but, did I good mean, well no it's been enlightening i appreciate the time uh i think i've got to get out the kitchen and do dishes now oh boy uh, yeah. my, my responsibilities here have not lessened so that'll happen <laughs> Well, we certainly appreciate all your time, Ken, and appreciate you coming on our podcast. Um, it's, again, like uh, Trevor said, very eye-opening experience for us. So thank you once again for being a part of it. Well, it was very nice to meet you all, and thanks for the opportunity. I'm glad he jumped on the unpopular opinion. I had a couple of stupid too. airplane trivia oh. questions to ask from the movie Airplane, but oh, I really that's like always the... a good fail-safe. There's always something we can ask from Airplane. Oh, yeah. yeah. This is like a truth or dare, but like the cool people choose dare and they choose the unpopular. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I think we had a, a great chat with Ken. Absolutely. A lot to be learned there. He's got a lot of knowledge and experience and uh, a lot that I think we could take from him. I envy his 747 experience. I know you But do. also his experience as a pilot in general. Yeah, he's, <laughs> he's flown some cool airplanes. Mm-hmm. I want to see his Meg. I think that's really cool. I think we're going to have to have an episode about his mega. We we're going to have to <gasps> hanger visits. <laughs> hanger visit. But you have to it's wait. We have to wait until I get back. Then the three of us can fly the sundowner down. That's like three years from now, isn't it? No, <laughs> September. <laughs> oh, September. I was mistaken. Uh, Trevor's just going to be gone forever. He's never coming back. I'm just. I'm just dead to the world. No, mm -hmm. the audience will know no different because you're going to continue to show up. This is true. Your Wi-Fi is just going to be crappy. I'm continuing the show from the dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's, in, he's at Lackland. He's not dead. <laughs> well, I mean, sort of. It is the birthplace of Airmen, so. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> Are you going to reincarnate like a phoenix? Yeah, he's rise he's, from the ashes. He's down there to be born again. Yep. Like an evangelist. Yeah, I'm a born again airman. <laughs> <laughs>
So, Jim, what do we have going on for our next episode? So in our next episode, I'm excited to bring in uh, Lion Templin. He is a author, he is a private pilot, and he is a business consultant, but he's also had, depending on how you look at it, the fortunate or unfortunate luck of having a number of aircraft emergencies, both on the ground and in the air, that he has successfully navigated. We'll be bringing him in to talk about his stories and see if there's some things that we can pass on to our listeners that might be a benefit to you should you end up in a situation like that. Um, Another little side note, you will recognize his voice from the intro and outro of this show. So stay tuned for that as his silky smooth voice teaches us all about aircraft emergencies. We thank you for joining us on our conversation here on this podcast. Remember, you can always reach out to us at the Flying Midwest Podcast at gmail.com or on our social media platforms. Oh, don't forget to like and subscribe. Hit the bell. And don't forget, we have a website, flyingmidwest.com. Until next time. See ya. See ya. See ya. Thanks so much for joining us on the Flying Midwest Podcast. Until next time, podcast service terminated, Squawk VFR, frequency change approved. Good day. Hi, I'm Jim's daughter, Hannah. And now it's time for my favorite part of the show, bloopers. (laughs) That's the beginning of our guy crew. Let's see here. <laughs> flying Monkey Podcast. You know that my, that's what my dad cost, calls it. He calls it the Flying Monkeys Podcast. <laughs> I mean, I kind of like that, though. It's kind of cute. I do not encourage him. I'm not. Oh, well, he's not listening. No, he says he's I trying to listen, it. but he falls asleep. We have our host, these idiots. Uh- <laughs> Guess what we're going to hear again? I'm calling the Air Force. <laughs> right. Hello, Air Force. <laughs> Don't worry about it, Trevor. She doesn't have their number. I'm taking my glass off. Glasses off. Oh, he's getting serious, Maddie. Oh. Glasses are off. I have had exactly nothing to contribute for like the past five minutes. So. Oh, it's been longer than that. They are fun, fun engines. Those uh, are some fun engines. Like they'd like to go out on the town and have a good time, or. Like... <laughs> so this new aircraft is an aircraft. Yep. Don't put that in the bloopers, please. That is going into the bloopers. You know that, right? (laughs) It's certainly a plane. Just a reminder, their event is going to occur next Saturday. 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 Their event takes place next Saturday. Oh, I did it again. (laughs) Saturday. Thanks, Trevor, for picking me up, brother. (laughs) Anytime. You raise me up. We're going to raise you up right to the gag reel. That was excellent. Excellent? Excellent. Like eggs? Yes. Ooh, Trevor could set a good example. Okay, I'm done. Then we can exit this podcast. <laughs> egg. What's the- Thank you for your egg. contribution, Trevor. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> in building this aircraft, Textron wanted to have me to... Ver- <laughs> That's all, folks.